Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. That was kind of a 2020 good instead of a 2021 good. I really wanted more from you there, but uh, either way, good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. If you have got a Bible, we're going to be kicking off a brand new series that's going to last for a while in the book of 1 Corinthians. We did a jaunt through uh, the Psalms uh, in the fall of last year, and today we're going to begin here in 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. While you're turning there, I'll tell you a little story. Over the holidays, some elders and staff were sitting back behind stage getting ready for a service, and our pastoral resident, Jared Lawson, was just talking about a time that he was in Europe, and he said something that was really strange. He said, when I was in Norway, I ate a reindeer. And I said, what did you say? And he said, yeah, I ate a reindeer. And I said, Jared is the reason my Christmas presents were late last year, because you ate Dasher? Is that what you monster? What'd you have for dessert, Frosty the Snowman? You can't just do, that's like eating Christmas. He just thought this was totally fine. He didn't see anything wrong with him eating this magical, majestic reindeer, and he just kept talking about it. He was like, Rudolph, with your nose so bright, won't you guide my appetite? And we're like, you're a murderer. What is wrong with you? And that is basically the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, here's what I mean by that. Jared saw no problem with that. He just, it's like he had said that he had eaten a unicorn and we're like, okay, and we weren't just gonna respond to that. That's 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, all this crazy stuff's going on. There's a guy sleeping with his stepmom. There are people going to temple prostitutes. There are people getting drunk at communion. There are people suing one another, denying the resurrection, and they think everything is cool. And then Paul, the apostle Paul, hears about it and he's like, do what now? What is happening in Corinth? And so what he has to do is he has to write this letter to correct some of the crazy that is going on at the church in Corinth. First Corinthians is a fun book. It is a very relevant book for uh, our culture, for evangelical culture. It is a church that is just not doing well. One pastor has called uh, the church at Corinth Paul's problem children. Another pastor titled his series in First Corinthians, Christians Gone Wild. That is 1 Corinthians, okay? There's a bunch of weird stuff going on, but it's gonna be a lot of fun and we are gonna learn a lot as we begin this series and then cover this book over the next about year and a half-ish. So today we're gonna get into the introduction of this book because all of scripture is God's word, so we can't just skip over the greetings or something like that. And we are gonna look at six points that I want you to see as we work through these three verses. Okay, I've got six points I want you to see just in this introduction that's gonna set us up well for the series. Let me pray for us and then we will get into the text. Father, we come to you through the Son and by the Spirit and confess that you are great. We need your mercy, we need your love, we need your grace. We're broken, we're hurting. It's been a frustrating last year. We pray for grace this year, that it wouldn't be the same pressure. But we confess that our hope is ultimately in you. Our happiness is not based on situations which are changing, but in a, uh, a triune God who is unchanging. We love you and we bless your name, amen. Let's get here into verse one. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Just as a quick point, that means Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus and Sosthenes is helping him, not that Paul is an apostle of both Jesus and some random guy named Sosthenes. So just take that uh, for what it's worth. Let's start at the first phrase there. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is the author of this letter. Who is the apostle Paul? Okay? The Apostle Paul, his Jewish or Hebrew name is Saul. His Greco-Roman name is Paul, Paulos. That word, by the way, means short. 
we actually have a description of the Apostle Paul, not in the Bible, but from a first or second century document that describes him as being bow-legged, somewhat short, balding, and having a big nose. So I don't know what you thought the Apostle Paul looked like, but some early church leaders thought that that's what he looked like. Not the best, uh, not the best uh, uh, looking guy, but an, uh, a brilliant and godly man, nevertheless. The Apostle Paul was called by Christ to be an apostle. So let's talk about that and why this is important and why Paul says that he's an apostle right out of the gate, okay? When we think of an apostle, what I mean by that term is a capital A apostle, okay? Capital A apostle, guys like Paul, guys like Peter, etc. The kind of guys that can write scripture, the kind of guys that have authority over the churches. Sometimes people use the term apostle with a lowercase a, which just means somebody who's sent out, okay? Your mailman is an apostle in that sense. If you ever go to a church, though, and they have apostles, you should leave because that church is about to get real weird, okay? There are no apostles today, no capital A apostles. Yes, there are people sent out, but let's just call them messengers or church planners. There are no capital A apostles today. They have died, but the apostle Paul is appealing to the fact that he is a capital A apostle, and there are three requirements that you had to meet to be an apostle, okay? First, you had to be called by Jesus to be an apostle. You don't get to just show up one day and say, I think I'll have authority over all the churches. It doesn't work that way. You had to be called by Christ to be an apostle. Two, you had to have seen the resurrected Jesus, which happened to Paul on the road to Damascus. And the third one, and this is one a lot of theologians miss, you have to be one who suffers for Christ. When the apostles talk about the fact that they're an apostle and defending their apostleship, constantly what they'll do is they'll talk about how much they have suffered for Christ, which their opponents, the false apostles, are not doing. They're living lavishly. The real apostles are being persecuted for the name. Let's look at a few of these requirements here. Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. You see that God must call an apostle. 1 Corinthians, this book that we're studying, 9, 1 through 2, Paul says this in defending his apostleship. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And then Acts 9, 15 through 16. But the Lord said to him, a guy named Ananias, go, for he, that's Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The Apostle Paul is going to tell us that he's an apostle right out of the gate because that's one of the things that's being questioned in Corinth. These other teachers have shown up and they're flashy and they're good speakers. They're what are called sophists and they're eloquent and they practice rhetoric and they're saying, don't listen to Paul, listen to us. And so Paul's gonna right out of the gate remind them, I'm an apostle. I'm not the most eloquent. I'm not the greatest orator, but I've been called by Christ. I've seen the resurrected Jesus. I've suffered for him. You are under my authority. The reason that's important is because when Paul speaks in the Bible, God speaks. To disbelieve or disobey Paul is to disbelieve or disobey God because he is speaking on God's behalf. The Bible didn't just fall down from the sky with, you know, gold-trimmed edges and maps. It was written by men, but God supervened that process to make sure what those men were writing was exactly what God wanted written down. So we need to know right out of the gate that the Apostle Paul stands at a level that is above us. I'll give you an example. Many of you know I don't like flying on airplanes, or as I call them, death traps, despite the fact that it's literally one of the safest things you can do. I don't like them. I still do it because I'm not a coward, but I don't like it. And I have a buddy who's a pilot, and so I ask him questions all the time. I'm like, okay, what happens if we're in the air and the engines cut out? And he's like, well, we just 
glide down because it's a hollow tube with wings and physics exists, right? I'm like, okay, I've got another one. What if we suck up a bird or a bat or something into the engine and it blows out? And he's like, yeah, I've already done that. You just land. Again, planes don't just drop like rocks. They have wings and science exists and that's why planes stay in the air. I'm like, okay, I've got another one for you. What if we get struck by lightning? He's like, yeah, I've done it. You're not grounded, so it just goes through you and everything is fine. I'm like, this is a very helpful conversation. Okay, what about this? What if the wings just snap off? And he's like, that's not a thing. They're not made of Legos, right? They're flexible, they're they're, they're bolted on, they don't just snap off. When we come to that conversation, I have opinions and he has opinions, but his opinions trump mine. He is the expert in that field and I am not. When we come to the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is the expert here. The apostles stand over you and I, okay? Because they are the ones inspired by God to write scripture. Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen to this next part. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The prophets, that's the Old Testament. The apostles, that's the writings in the New Testament. Christ himself being the the, the cornerstone of this building, that we are little pieces built up like a building. That's how the church works. That's how authority works in the church. That's what Paul's gonna tell us right out of the gate. Okay, so the first point I want you to see here in 1 Corinthians is this. Everything written in 1 Corinthians is from God and should be believed and obeyed. Everything written in 1 Corinthians is from God, should be believed and obeyed. 1 Corinthians is gonna challenge you. It's gonna talk about sex. It's gonna talk about suing one another. It's gonna talk about the resurrection. It's gonna talk about spiritual gifts. It's going to challenge you and where you don't like it or disagree with it, it wins, okay? You have opinions and God has opinions, but God opinions we call facts, And so his win, when we get into the Bible, okay? That's how it works. That's the first thing I want you to see. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now let's talk about the letter itself because this is an introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul had established the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey, okay? This makes it unlike some other churches that Paul didn't know that he had to write to or correspond with just via distance. Paul had actually established the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey. He wrote it sometime between AD 53 and AD 54, and he wrote it from Ephesus. How do we know that he wrote it from Ephesus? Well, unlike other books, he just tells us, 1 Corinthians 16, 8, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Super helpful, Paul. That's awesome. So we know where it's written from. Though it comes after Romans in your New Testament, it is chronologically probably the third correspondence that Paul wrote after Galatians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So let me, let me Bible-splain something to you real quick. The Bible is not written in chronological order, okay? It's divided by genre. So in the Old Testament, you have the law altogether, you have the prophets, you have the historical books, you have the writings, you have the, the minor prophets, you have all these sections. It's done by genre. The same is true in the New Testament. You have the Gospels, the four Gospels first. Acts is a transitional book. Then you have Paul's letters, what are called epistles. Then you have the Catholic epistles. Then you have Revelation, etc. The way that Paul's letters are uh, ordered in your Bible is based on length. The reason Romans comes first is because it's the longest, followed by 1 Corinthians, etc. It's not like that chronologically. Chronologically, the first book Paul probably wrote was Galatians. That's the earliest one that we have. Then the Thessalonian correspondence, then the Corinthian correspondence. So this would have been very early on in Paul's uh, canonical letter writing career as he writes uh, the letters of First and Second Corinthians. Additionally, what we think of as First and Second Corinthians, these two letters are actually more like Second 
and 4th Corinthians. We know of two other letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. Now, it's not because we found them or something. We weren't doing an archaeological dig and found extra letters and tried to keep them out of the Bible, Da Vinci Code style. That's not what happened. It's because the only thing that God had decided that his church needed forever was the book of what we think of as 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We know there were two other letters because the Apostle Paul in the New Testament mentions two other letters written to Corinth. So we know that there were two other ones. So what we think of as 1st and 2nd Corinthians is really 2nd and 4th Corinthians, or as scholars would call it, Corinthians B and Corinthians D. Now, does that mean that something happened because we don't have these other letters and now we don't have the word of God? No. You understand the Apostle Paul wrote a bunch of letters we don't have because that was how you did correspondence back then. They didn't have text. They didn't have email. Paul, we don't have all the Mother's Day cards Paul wrote to his mom. We don't have the grocery lists that he wrote when he was in the market, apparently buying meat sacrificed to idols, which we'll learn you can eat later on in 1 Corinthians. He probably wrote a bunch of letters we don't have. It's not everything the apostles write that's scripture. It's what God has ordained that makes it up in his canon. That's what is scripture. So really we're looking at the second of this correspondence that has already begun with the church at Corinth. Now, the end of verse one, says, and our brother Sosthenes. Who is Sosthenes, okay? We don't know for sure. He could have helped Paul write the letter because a lot of ancient letter writing was done by dictation. You would dictate to a scribe or an amanuensis. He probably, though, is just a coworker with Paul. He's probably like Paul's hype man. Before Paul goes into a sanctuary, Sosthenes comes in there and he's like, put your hands together for the apostle Paul. And he gets everyone all, you know, riled up and drops his mic and then Paul comes in and preaches the gospel. That's who he is. He's kind of the Robin to the Batman of Paul. Batman's doing most of the work, but he throws on his green tights and shin kicks a few people. He helps, right? He helps. That's Sosthenes. Sosthenes is probably just this coworker that helped Paul. Now, there's one other place in the Bible that refers to a guy named Sosthenes, and it's in the book of Acts, and here's what's interesting. It's in Corinth. Here's where it is. It's in Acts 18, 17. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal, but Gallio paid no attention to any of this. What is happening? There was this Roman official named Gallio, and the Jews wanted Paul to be condemned. And he's a Roman official. He's a a, a governing official. So he says to the Jews, why would I condemn him? You're talking about Jewish theology. You Semitic people go deal with your own issues. If it's a legal issue, let me know. But I'm not going to judge on theology. I don't care. And the Jews get really mad. So they grab this guy named Sosthenes, start beating him. And Gallio's like, I think I'm just going to let this happen. I think I'm just going to let this play out. So what may have happened is this leader in this synagogue in Corinth got converted and is now a companion of the Apostle Paul, which is incredible in and of itself, okay? Verse two, to the church of God that is at Corinth. By the way, throughout this series, we're gonna accidentally say Corinth a bunch. Those are not the same. Corinth is in Greece. Corinth is 40 minutes away. I actually grew up in Corinth. I'm a Corinthian, if you will. So forgive us when we say that. We will accidentally say that because we're from Texas, but Corinth, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Let's start with that first phrase there, to the church of God that is in Corinth. 
Let's talk a little bit about Corinth, okay? I'm gonna give you some shocking facts, not for shock value though, but because you need to understand how pagan and crazy this city is so that this book makes sense to you, okay? Corinth was this port city in Greece and it was enormous, okay? It was a place of culture, it was a place of art, it was a place of education. If you think of a modern day New York City, Los Angeles, London, Milan, it's, it's where you have a bunch of different kinds of people and it is culturally elite. Beautiful buildings, costly garments, beautiful people, money, wealth, literature, all that kind of stuff. And it was enormous, okay? It was enormous for the first century. So to put it in perspective for you, how many people lived in ancient Corinth the number is about 200,000. Okay, now that doesn't sound much to us. That's about the size of McKinney today. That doesn't sound much to us because we live in cities with millions of people. But to put that in perspective for you, 200,000 people in the ancient world, the ancient city of Athens had 10,000. London, one of the biggest cities in the Middle Ages, had 70,000. So the fact that in the ancient world that this has 200,000 people in it means that it is a huge, huge bustling city. Huge bustling city. The people there were known to be beautiful and athletic. Near Corinth was where they hosted the Isthmian Games, which were kind of like the Olympics, but every two years. A lot of the ancient Greeks actually thought to be unattractive or to be out of shape was a moral failure. Okay, it was a moral failure. So you've got all these hot, beautiful people with money and wealth and prestige and all that kind of stuff. But there also is a huge dark side to Corinth and that is that it is crazy, crazy, crazy pagan. Okay, they had a temple to Aphrodite. They had one to Apollo or Athena. They had one to Asclepius. Who is Asclepius? Asclepius is the Greek god of healing or medicine. And his symbol is a snake because a snake sheds its skin and there's new life. Today, when you look at a paramedic symbol, what is it that's going around that paramedic symbol? It's a snake. It's in honor of the god of healing, Asclepius. They had a temple devoted to the worship of the emperor or his family and cults devoted to Demeter, Dionysus, Artemis, Hera, Hermes, Isis, the Islamic State, I'm kidding, the ancient god, Isis, Jupiter, Poseidon, Fortuna, luck or fortune, Zeus, and others. So this is a, not only a city that's just wealthy and powerful, but it's a city where there's a lot of paganism. There's demon worship and there's false religion and false teaching and idolatry and all these kind of things. Additionally, it was an extremely sexually immoral city. Very, very sexually immoral. <clears throat> in the ancient Greek world, pedophilia was extremely common. Pederasty, where you have an older man with a younger boy, was extremely common. Homosexuality was way more common then than it is today. We think that homosexuality and transgenderism is like new. It's old. It's really, really old. It's not progressive. It's very traditional. That was very, very common in the ancient world. Although, ironically, they didn't allow gay marriage, which is interesting. So it's more common than it is today, but they didn't allow gay marriage for three reasons. One, it's not the definition of marriage. The Greeks are very logical. Marriage by definition is one man and one woman. Two, they thought that not having a nuclear family would be terrible for the state. It would be bad for culture at large if you got rid of the nuclear family. And three, to marry a man is to treat a man like a woman and therefore to degrade him. So though this was very common, gay marriage was not a thing. When it came to just general promiscuity, that was, they were very promiscuous people. A lot of sleeping around, both before marriage and in marriage. So polygamy was not allowed in the Roman Empire, but that didn't mean that you couldn't have uh, mistresses and stuff on the side. 
Obviously, the wife couldn't have any other lovers, but a husband would often have other secret lovers on the side. So they were very, very promiscuous. Now, right before the time of the Apostle Paul, it had been even worse. Right before the time of the Apostle Paul, they had a thousand priestess prostitutes that you could sleep with to worship Aphrodite. That's how you'd worship. You'd go to her temple, sleep with one of the thousand priestess prostitutes in the city, okay? Plato coined the term Corinthian girl for prostitutes. That's what Plato called prostitutes. You have their names for prostitutes, harlots or whatever it is. For Plato, he calls them a Corinthian girl because that's what the girls at Corinth are known for doing, okay? The writer Aristophanes coined the phrase in Greek, Corinthiazomai, to Corinthianize, which meant to commit sexual immorality. So they are known throughout the Greek world for not only their paganism, but for especially their sexual immorality. You wonder how come in 1 Corinthians, people are going to temple prostitutes and a guy's trying to marry his, or sleep with his stepmom and all these other kind of things. How does that happen? It's because they're just being Corinthians. Corinthians be Corinthianizing and that's what's happening. The ancient geographer Strabo said this, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth, okay? In plays in Greece that we have records of, they would often portray the Corinthians as drunkards. So if you're watching a play and a guy stumbles on stage and he's drunk and he hasn't said anything, if you are a Greek in the ancient world, you think, that guy's from Corinth. I know it. Which is important because we're gonna see that the Corinthians are getting drunk at communion, which also means they're using real wine, by the way, for communion. But uh, that's a different topic. Next line here. So take all the paganism and all the sexual morality I just mentioned, hang on to that, and look at the very next phrase here. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. How on earth can the Apostle Paul take all these people who are doing these terrible things and what he, how he addresses them is as those who are holy, those who are sanctified? Because look at me, this is important. Your identity is based on whether or not you know Christ, not your actions, not what you do or don't do. At the end of the day, though these people are struggling with horrendous sins, Paul says, that's not your identity. Your identity is someone who's sanctified. You're someone who's in Christ. That's the most real thing about you. For somebody going to temple prostitutes that's a Christian, Paul says, stop doing that because you're already holy. Not stop doing that to be holy. Stop doing that because you're already holy. Christ already dwells in you. Everything is already okay between you and God. That's what's going on. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. It's an incredible, powerful phrase when you understand what it was like at Corinth. Now, when he says that they're sanctified, the word sanctified can mean one of two things. Typically in theology, when we use the term sanctified, we mean progressive growing and practical holiness. So you become a Christian, and then 20 years later, you're a little bit holier. You pray more, you read your Bible more, you repent of your sins quicker. That's typically what we think of as sanctification. That's not how the Apostle Paul is using the term here. The, the Apostle Paul is using the term here the same way that we think of as justified. Someone who's been reconciled to God, someone who's been set apart. The high priest in the Old Testament was sanctified. He was set apart as holy and devoted to God. And that's what the Apostle Paul is gonna say about the people in Corinth. And notice this, to those sanctified, what's the next phrase? In Christ Jesus. This is a huge theme in Paul of being in Christ. Okay, let me explain this real quick. If you think of Christ as a circle, he's not a circle, he's a person, but think of him as a circle. What, 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 what labels would you attach to that circle when it comes to morality? You would say he's perfect, he's spotless, he's loved by the Father, he's holy, he's righteous. When you become a Christian, you get put inside that circle. And what's true of Jesus' righteousness is true of you. 
that you are perfect, you are spotless, you are righteous, you are loved by the Father, everything is okay because you're in Christ. This is very important for growing in holiness. You don't grow in holiness by trying to grow in holiness any more than you try to get to the moon by jumping harder. The way you grow in holiness is by realizing that you're already holy in God's sight. You're already in Christ. You and I, we're dirty, but we died at our conversion and now there's only Christ and we are seen as perfect and loved and accepted because we are in Christ. I can't get to the moon by trying harder. I have to be put in something that is outside of me, this rocket ship, that can do what I cannot do. It's the same way with holiness. Sinners cannot be holy. What we have to do is we have to be placed in Christ. We have to be placed in that circle. And what's true of his righteousness becomes true of us. It's credited to our account and we are seen as holy. So to people that are absolutely committing deplorable acts, Paul says, dear people who are set apart and already loved by God, you're in Christ. You're in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Philippians 3.9, and be found in him, that's Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that's which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Second Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, that's in Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 2, 13 through 14, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So here's the second thing I want you to see in this text. God sees all Christians as completely perfect in Christ. God sees all Christians as completely perfect in Christ. If you feel as though God's mad at you and you feel that you're just a constant failure, that's because you're looking at you apart from Christ. And you apart from Christ are those things, dirty and a failure, just like I am. But in Christ, God sees you as perfect. Look at the next phrase there. Called to be saints. Let's talk about this real quick because this is a word that a lot of people are confused by. <clears throat> when we use the term saints in the Bible, we don't mean the same thing that is meant in Roman Catholicism, okay? In Roman Catholicism, a saint is this especially holy person who's like varsity Christianity and you and I are just JV. We're B team, right? We're bouncing the basketball off our foot because we're not very good. But the varsity team, the, the A team, those are the saints, and what happens are these saints are people that are so magnificently holy that the church believes that even miracles can be done in their name and that they can give you some of their righteous points in a big like heavenly treasure trove called a treasury of merit. That's the Roman Catholic view of saints. It actually comes from, and we'll learn this in church history, it comes from paganism. When a bunch of pagans are getting into the church under Constantine, they just take their traditional worship of the God of the harvest or the God of you know, health or whatever, and then you just have a patron saint of the harvest or a patron saint of health. In fact, some of the patron saints are really strange. A few that I looked up, not, the, the Catholics would debate whether or not these are true patron saints, but there's a patron saint of fireworks, a patron saint of uh, motorcycles, a patron saint of protection from mice, a playing card manufacturer's patron saint, and my favorite, a patron saint of unattractive people. You never wanna pray to that one because then people know. You've admitted, right? You've admitted it. That is not at all what the Bible mean by, means by this word saints. Saint and a Christian are synonyms in the Bible. 
This Greek word hagioi just means holy ones. We are saints. You're no longer just Judy or Bob or Mike. You're Saint Judy or Saint Bob or Saint Mike. Do you realize that? That in God's sight, because you're in Christ, you are a saint. You're perfect. You're holy. You're spotless. We are saints. I hereby saint you all, okay? Especially if your name is Mary, because then you get to be Santa Maria. That's what you want to be, okay? That's what you want to be. We are holy. We are saints. We are set apart. That is what the average Christian is. There's not two levels of Christianity, the junior varsity and the varsity. In Christ, we are all the varsity when it comes to that. Third thing I want you to see from this text then, you're still a saint even when you commit horrible sins. You're still a saint even when you commit horrible sins. Your identity comes before your actions. Your identity comes before your actions. Here's why this is important for Corinth. They are denying the Apostle Paul's authority. They are embarrassed about the gospel. They are denying the resurrection. They are going to temple prostitutes, suing one another, getting drunk at communion, taking away poor people's food at communion so they have nothing to eat. There's a guy sleeping with his stepmom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It is a terrible, terrible church. And yet, they are still seen as saints. Why? Not because they've cleaned themselves up and not because they're trying harder, because they have a holy savior. In the Old Testament, if a leper touched you, you would be unclean. But Jesus touches a leper and he makes the leper clean while he stays clean. That's how sanctification works. You don't stop being a leper. You don't, you don't get better. What happens is Christ touches you. You touch the hem of his garment and his righteousness is imputed to you and you are seen as a saint. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, says in one of my favorite quotes from him, if you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary but a true mercy. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly, but let your trust in Christ be stronger. Now, here's what he means by that. He's not actually promoting sin when he says sin boldly. Luther's a very pious guy, the kind of guy that spends four hours a day in prayer, okay? What he's saying is stop trying to comfort yourself by thinking that you're not that bad. You're much worse. Lean into the fact that you're spiritually awful, just like me. Lean into it. Know that you're a sinner and know that you're depraved and sin boldly and realize more important than that is that Christ loves you that you're forgiven, that you're accepted. Let your trust in Christ be stronger. What we do is we minimize how bad we are and then we only need a little bit of grace. What Paul and Luther are saying is, no, 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 maximize how bad you are in your mind. Realize that. So then realize how much grace you've been given. Maximize the sin, maximize the grace. Don't think you're not that bad. You're worse than you think you are, especially when it comes to your thoughts. In my actions, I can do pretty good, but in my thoughts, it is awful in here. If you were spending a day in here, you'd fire me so fast, so fast, right? So know that you're worse than you think you are, but you're more loved than you think you are. There's more grace for you than you think. When you feel like you've exhausted the depths of God's grace, you need to look up and realize there's an ocean left of it for you. Ocean left of it for you. Look at the next phrase. Together with all those who in every place. Here Paul is gonna appeal to the fact of that these Corinthians can't live in this unrighteous way because they belong to the universal church. They belong to the bride of Christ. That there is something about being a Christian where you lose your old identity and you're given a new identity that unites you with other Christians. This is what the word Catholic means. So again, let me clarify what I mean lest you freak out since we are a very reformed Protestant church here. When I say that you should be Catholic, 
I do not mean the denomination Roman Catholicism with the Pope as its head. That's not what I mean. When I say you should be Catholic, I mean the same thing the reformers mean. I mean Catholic with a small c. That word Catholic means universal. But Zach, I don't like the word Catholic. It's in the Bible. Where, Zach? I didn't see it. It's not written in English. The Bible's not written in English. It's in Greek. When it refers to the church in the New Testament, it says in Greek that it is kathalos. That's where you get the word Catholic. That means throughout all that the church goes throughout all. It's not just here at Parkway. It's everyone who confesses an orthodox view of who Christ is, that it goes throughout the whole world, that you belong to a body and you should be a part of that body and there shouldn't be that disunity. You should be a family. In a culture that is so divided, the way that we're gonna be unified is not through politics. You know what it's gonna be through? The gospel. That's it. Let's do a little poll. I'm gonna make you raise your hand. If you don't raise your hand, it's gonna be weird because sometimes I'll give you only one of two options and then you're stuck, okay? So let's do a little poll. Raise your hand in here if you are female. Go ahead, okay, about half. Raise your hand in here if you are male. Okay, about half. Raise your hand in here if you are over 50, okay? Raise your hand in here if you are under 50, okay? Raise your hand in here if you are of any ethnicity other than just white. This can be black, Hispanic, Asian, biracial. Go ahead and raise your hand, okay? Raise your hand in here if you have at least a high school education. Now leave your hand up if you still have a bachelor's degree. Leave your hand up if you still have a master's degree. Leave your hand up if you still have a doctorate. You see, we have education across the spectrum here. Raise your hand if you were not born in Texas. What? I need a moment to recover. I did not expect that. Let me say this. We are glad that you're here. Please do not ruin our perfect state. (laughs) Notice the diversity in that little thing. I was gonna do one with wealth, but I didn't wanna do that. Raise your hand if you're rich. You know, I don't wanna... (laughs) Notice the diversity. Now, what brings together people of different genders, different races, different education, different socioeconomic status, different location? And this is just one church in Texas. Think about all the Christians that are in China or in Africa or in South America or whatever it is. What is it that brings us together? We're very different. It's Christ. Christ is the only thing that can unify the heart of man. What is gonna get the guy that belongs to the KKK to repent and love people of other races? It's only Christ. What is gonna get the person that belongs to the Black Panthers to repent and love people that are white? Only Christ. Christ is the only thing that can actually unify us. And so what Paul is gonna do to a church that we'll see in Corinth that is divided is he's gonna say, Christ is your cornerstone. He is that foundation that unifies us. Fourth thing I want you to see, the church is to strive for unity. The church is to strive for unity. Now, let me be clear, not at all cost, not at all cost. If you unify around something that's evil, that dishonors God. It's not unity at all cost. It's as Luther would say, unity if possible, truth at all cost. What a lot of churches do is they do it the other way. They say truth if possible, unity at all cost. No, unity's good, but it's a silver medal. The gold medal is truth. And so we are called to unify. We're called to put down our petty differences. We're called to have grace on ah, adiaphora issues, things neither commanded nor forbidden in scripture. And we're to center ourselves around these primary things, but we are called to a sense of unity. Look at the last phrase here. Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. 
This is what it means to be a Christian. The central claim of Christianity is that Jesus is Lord. Now, we're so used to saying that that we've forgotten what that means, so I need to say this harshly in a culture that is very PC because what I'm about to say is thoroughly biblical. First of all, to say that Jesus is Lord means that he is Yahweh, that he is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that he is the God of Israel, that he is the God that delivered Israel out of Egypt. He is not a created being. He is not less than the Father. He is co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. So to say that he's Lord means that you also think that he is the Lord. But secondarily, here's what it means. This is one that's controversial, but it's all throughout the Bible. It means you call him master. The Bible calls you and I slaves. That's the term, douloi in Greek. Jesus is the master, the kurios, the Lord. And that's the relationship. I actually hate it in English translations when they translate the term bondservant. They're trying to tone it down. That's not the term. The term in Greek is slave, the same kind of slave you would buy off an auction block in the ancient world. Bond servants get to negotiate. They get to go free at some point. But with a slave, you don't get to negotiate. Jesus says jump and you say how high. He is in charge, he is the master, he gets to tell you and I what to do and we never get to stop being slaves. There's no freedom from him. That's what it means to call Jesus Lord. Do you believe that? When you say Jesus is your Lord, is this just a title to you? Or does that mean that he is in charge of anything? If his word, the Bible, says anything on any topic, I bow the knee and that's what I do right away, happily, happily. Do you believe that when you confess Jesus as master, as boss, as Lord, as king? That is what makes somebody a Christian. That's what makes somebody a Christian. And the apostle Paul is going to say, for you Corinthians that are doing terrible things I'm about to rebuke, the first thing I want you to know is you're sanctified, you're saints, you belong to the church, you've called on Jesus. That's what he's gonna say to this church. And by the way, that's actually how you grow in holiness. You don't grow in holiness by trying to fix what's wrong in you. You go back to this first part of 1 Corinthians and you say, what is my identity? I'm spotless, I'm a saint, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, etc. Now, because I'm already righteous, I'll do righteous things. Not I'll do righteous things and then God will see me as righteous. That's backwards. I'm already righteous, therefore I will do righteous things. Fifth thing I want you to see in this intro A broken church is still God's church. A broken church is still God's church. I've met a lot of Christians who uh, don't attend some type of church, and if I ask why, they usually had some sort of bad experience. I've had bad experiences in churches. It doesn't matter. It's Christ's bride. You don't get to be married to Christ and not be a part of Christ's bride. This is one of the reasons why I love church history. Church history is so much fun to study, and while we're studying theological equipping, it's so much fun because it's so unchristian. It's just the history of God's people shooting themselves in the foot. That's church history. It's fascinating. And there are times where Christ's bride is really pure, and there are times when Christ's bride is really not pure, but she always remains Christ's bride. Jesus loves his girl when she's doing well and when she's not doing well. The reason I love church history is because it's a reminder of how gracious Christ is to have a wife who's a harlot and keep pursuing her. That's what you see in Corinthians as well. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A few things here. First of all, you see a nascent Trinitarianism. We'll get to the Holy Spirit later on in the book, but here you see the Father and the Son mentioned. Though Paul is a monotheist, he is a Jew. He would have grown up every day confessing there is only one God, and yet when he talks about this one God, there is this plurality of persons, this plurality of hypostases. There's this diversity within this unity. And so you see that even here in 1 Corinthians. 
But I want you to see what's interesting about this greeting. Here is how you would greet somebody in Greek, okay? In the ancient world and even in today, you say kairain. That means greetings, kind of like when we just say hello. What does the word hello mean? Doesn't mean anything, it just kind of means hi, right? So you would say kairain. That's how you would greet somebody in Greek. In Hebrew, you would use the word peace, shalom. To a group of people like this, you'd say shalom lachem, right? Peace to you. Well, the Apostle Paul here does something interesting. He takes the Greek word kairain and he changes it to charis, which is a related word, which means grace. He's taking a normal greeting and he's Christianizing it. Not just kairain, but charis. Not just greetings, but grace for his Greco-Roman audience. And then he uses peace, which would have made sense to a Jewish audience. He's combining Jew and Gentile, even in his greeting to this church. He's making it distinctively Christian. And it's no mere greeting because notice that this grace and peace doesn't just come from us trying to will ourselves to have it. It comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's 1 Corinthians, verses one, or chapter one, verses one through three. It's an introduction. But don't skip over those parts of the Bible that are introductions or conclusions and think, ah, this is just introductory. It is profound that the Apostle Paul is appealing to his authority, that he is telling them that they're saints and sanctified even though they're doing terrible things that he is saying they belong to the larger church, that he is even the way he greets them, he's reminding them that they're Christians. He's saying, as I greet you, Christian greeting. He's giving them an explicitly Christian greeting. This should give us a tremendous amount of hope. My last point that I have is not something from the text itself. It's a summary of what we need to know as we get into the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's this. Number six, 1 Corinthians lets us know that the Bible provides all that we need for everything that we're dealing with. It's a reminder that what we're dealing with in our society is not new, it's old, and the Bible's already dealt with it, okay? I'll give you a few examples. Sexual immorality is something that we have a tendency to think is very new, right? We're surprised of how fast the transgender movement worked or how how much homosexuality there is or on TV or whatever it is, and that surprises us because that feels new. The Bible reminds us this is an old sin, This isn't new. This isn't cool and progressive. This is traditional. This is old, like way older than your grandparents. This is not some new hip thing. This is an old thing that didn't work very well and we're just recycling it again. Or the abuse of spiritual gifts. When you turn on the TV and you see people in a church service barking like a dog and flopping on the floor and they have apostles, you realize something's gone off here. But guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. The Bible has already dealt with that. They're having to deal with the abuse of gifts here in 1 Corinthians. Churches moving away from doctrine to try to be more, to try to be cool, to try to be more socially relevant. That's not new. We think that's new in a world of podcasts and stream services and all that kind of stuff. That's not new. That's old. In 1 Corinthians, the Greeks are embarrassed because the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and, quote, foolishness to Gentiles. The church is already tempted to capitulate and make the gospel look squeaky clean and make it look less offensive than it is. That's not a new problem. It's an old problem. And the Bible has already dealt with it. You see, what what 1 Corinthians should do is it should encourage us that all the crazy things going on in culture, we can go to the Bible to know how to deal with this. The, the, The socialism and the Marxism stuff, this is not new. It's already been tried in church history. And guess what? It goes very badly. People try it, millions die, then a few years later someone says, we didn't do it right. It's because you can't do it right. It's based on a wrong view of human nature. It's based on a view that's Pelagian. It's a view of human nature that says, mankind is good and will do good things. That's not true. Mankind is bad and will do bad things. You see, your theology matters. Dealing with a pandemic is not new. You realize the Bible tells us how to deal with this. 
You understand that in the Old Testament, there are rules about quarantining an infectious disease. And at no point do you quarantine all of Israel and shut down the temple. You quarantine sick people. The Bible's already dealt with this. It is, what's new is not pandemics. The church has always dealt with pandemics. What's new is that this is the first time in my life where I've seen the same fear in Christians as the lost unbelieving world. That's, the first, that's what's new for me. That we have no hope in the gospel. We act the same. There's nothing wrong with taking precautions. Take your precautions, wash your hands, wear your mask, social, all that's fine. Do your thing. I'm talking about your heart. When I talk to a lot of Christians, they are scared to death. And that's what's new to me because in the Bible, they look forward to meeting Jesus. Take all the precautions you want. Eat healthy, work out, do your social distancing, and right before you get hit by a car and you die, I want you to think of this lesson. Your hope is not that you'll live forever unresurrected. Your hope is resurrection. Your mortality is real and it is coming. 1 Corinthians encourages us in a season that feels crazy it lets us know God is not stressed out. God is not concerned. God has ordained these things from before the foundation of the world and he has preserved his church and he'll continue to preserve his church. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. <clears throat> Almighty God, we thank you for this book of 1 Corinthians. We look forward to getting into this a little bit deeper. We pray that uh, as we study this book, you would convict our hearts, that you would change us that we would love you more, that we would correct our theology where it needs to be corrected. We thank you that you have in 1 Corinthians recorded the mistakes of others so that we don't have to commit them, that uh, they've already stepped on the landmines so that we don't have to find them. That's a grace from you. I pray for our church. I pray for this season. I pray for our country. I pray for everything that's going on. Would you be gracious to us? You, you were so gracious to us last year. In a terrible year, you were good. Had you let us all die, you would still have been good. You're good by nature but we pray that you would give us more grace as we embark on a new year as well. We love you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.